0: It's Bible study night, let's go. Welcome in to Bible Study Night on the channel YouTube.com/slash Tim Hatch My name is Tim, and on Wednesday nights at 7:30 p.m., we are going through the Kings of Compromise. This is a verse-by-verse verse examination of First and Second Kings, and we are in part 29 of this content. So glad that you've joined me. Hit the subscribe button. Hit the like button. The notification bell that helps get the algorithm to work in our favor and spreads the word about these uh, videos that we create. Bible study and we are going to talk about something that is really interesting it is the demise of the northern kingdom of Israel remember Israel is divided into two kingdoms after Solomon because his prideful arrogant younger son Rehoboam didn't listen to his elders and wanted the kingdom to run his way and so God handed over 10 tribes to Jeroboam one of the foremen in Solomon's work uh, regimes those 10 tribes deteriorate far quicker than the two southern tribes Judah and Benjamin And today, here we are, 2 Kings 16 and 17, where we look at the ultimate, inevitable demise of the Northern Kingdom. But there is always hope, even in the dark seasons of international, national, communal, and personal times. God's grace is still available. But we read these texts to remember one important fact. We are different, and that is a good thing. So welcome, and let's get started with the Kings of Compromise. Compromise. What we have seen or what we are seeing now, we have seen before. That is the theme of this series. And my ultimate point that I want to make to you today is what I just said. Never forget that you are different. You are called to be different. When the New Testament writers, the apostles, talk about the children of God, they often say the phrase called to be saints. And saints are different, set apart. The word saint comes from sanctus, the Latin word for, or translation of hagios, the Greek word holy. So you are called to be holy or in, in layman's terms, different, set apart for God's purposes. Jesus prays in John chapter 17, verse 16. He says, they are not of the world. He's talking to his father and he says, they are not of the world, us, his people, even as I am not of the world, just as Jesus is different, so you the church are different and you're not supposed to be like this world. And what we see in the Northern kingdom is a deterioration through uh, compromise and imitation compromise because they didn't hold up to the word of God imitation because they looked at the nations around them and they started to do what they did. And then inevitably they became corrupted and God who drove out those nations from Canaan and gave it to Israel under Joshua is not going to do to Israel the same thing because they're becoming just like the nations. And it shows the impartiality of God. God is a impartial judge. He is not going to show special favor to one group of people. In fact, he actually holds those whom he has drawn to himself and treated with special grace to a higher standard, but he will judge them and he will judge his people Israel as we will see and we will learn some powerful truths that we need to be reminded of. And maybe we need to just kind of take pride in that we are different. We are, and it's okay to be different. And that is what God has ordained us to be. So let's go through the text, and then we will tap into truths and close this episode out. Come on, let's go. Okay, 2 Kings 16, verse one, it says this, in the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah. Slowing down my words because these are important names. Okay, so Ahaz is whose son? Jotham's son, who we referenced last episode very quickly. He was a somewhat righteous king, albeit not totally righteous. What Jotham will do is he will restore the gate that leads to the temple where people worship, and there is a profound truth to what he did there, which his grandson Hezekiah will complete later on in the next in two chapters. But we're going to table that for a moment. And we're going to come back to it because it's really powerful. So just hang on to that for a second. But this is the Judean kingdom. This is the, the kingdom that God reserved because of His promise to David. So the two southern kingdoms, Judah and Benja- southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, David's kingdom which up until this point has been somewhat more righteous than the northern kingdoms that have fallen under the spell of Omri and of Ahab and of other, a host of other godless kings, you know, Jeroboam and then Jeroboam II. Now Judah is actually becoming utterly corrupt as well, which is unthinkable. And the guy who does this is named Ahaz. And remember Joth, Jotham, his father, was a godly king. Ahaz will be a wicked king. We're going to see just how wicked he is. And then uh, Ahaz's son is named Hezekiah, who if you know anything about the kings of Israel or Judah, you know this, that there's only a few names that are really at the top of the list of righteous kings and Hezekiah is one of them. So you have bad king, good king, really... So you have good king, bad king, and then really, really righteous king. And this is incredibly important because it just kind of shows you that... Uh, godly parents can have some bad kids sometimes, and bad kids can produce godly God and bad parents can produce godly kids. God doesn't have grandchildren. You know, you don't get grandfathered in because of your parents' faith. It's up to you. And Ahaz here is going to reign in Judah over a absolutely hideous season of compromise in the north, in the southern kingdom of judah so let's take a look verse two it says this he was 20 years old when he began to reign he reigned 16 years in jerusalem he did not do what was right in the eyes of the lord his god as his father david had done remember that is one of the key phrases in first and second kings is that every king is measured against who david don't mention your don't measure your life against your neighbor Or even your pastor measure your life against christ that is our goal we want to be like him we are we are predestined to be conformed to the image of jesus not anybody else so he does not do what is right as was as uh david his father did but he walked in the ways of the kings of israel he even check this out burned his son as an offering now the technical hebrew language there is he made his son pass through the fire so i don't know There was two ways to kill your children back in the ancient world was to place them on a burning, smoldering altar of Molech, which was a bull's head and a man's body with the arms held out like this. But evidently, there was also the way of just having them walk willingly or shoving them into the fire. This is hideous activity, pagan revelry to the nth degree. So he burned his son. As an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. A couple of things I want to talk about right here. There is a small picture here of what your life will sometimes be like. Because, like I said, you go from Jotham, good king, to Ahaz, bad king, to Hezekiah, great king. In some ways, this is, a, this is a picture of our lives following Jesus. We will have good months, we will have terrible months, and then we have really good months. You know, uh, We will even have, it can be a generational picture as well, but we will even have seasons in churches, uh, seasons in church history on a macrocosmic level where you will see the church will have great centuries and terrible centuries and great centuries. And the pendulum tends to swing back and forth In ancient Israel, as a picture of what happens in our own spiritual life, raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about, because the pendulum is real. So Ahaz is this wicked king. He is sacrificing his sons in the fire. He is doing abominable practices as the nations that God drove out before Israel. And now look at what happens. He is attacked from the uh, neighboring nations, Syria and Israel. Again, this is in Judah. David's kingdom, the godly kingdom, is now being attacked by the ungodly kingdom and Syria, a pagan nation, at the same time. Verse 5, then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, came up to war on Jerusalem, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer him. At that time, Rezin, the king of Syria, recovered Elath for Syria, and drove the men of Judah from Elath, and the Edomites came to Elath, where they dwell to this day. So this is kind of an interesting passage here. Number one, The text mentions that uh, Ahaz loses Eloth. Eloth was an important port city in Judah. And it was where they imported trade goods from Egypt and and sent trade goods out to Egypt and other nations, including even India. Uh, So this is a major trade uh, center. It's a metropolitan flourishing center. And what happens here is Syria captures it, the Edomites inhabit it, and it's lost to the God to the people of God because of Ahaz's immorality. Financial distress is the result. This is an economic doom, okay? You lose one of your trade ports, you will suffer economically. And it's kind of interesting in our country and in our day how we are seeing the rise, I was reading an NPR article just today, this afternoon, what is the cause of all the homeless encampments that are rising throughout you you know cities in the united states and everybody wants to blame that there's just not enough money given to homelessness but you can't solve spiritual problems with money but this is how pagans this is how unbelievers see everything they see everything through the lens of tax and spend or more money will solve the problems or whatever and meanwhile many pagans who have Plenty of money are some of the worst people on the face of the earth. Money does not solve problems. It creates it sometimes, many times. But let me just bear in here before we get too dark and show you one of the most amazing pictures of God's grace in all the Bible. And believe it or not, it is right here during the, king, during the reign of Ahaz, this wicked child-sacrificing king in Judah. You see what it says here as he's attacked by Rezin and um, Pekah, these two kings who come against him, and they can't defeat him. They can't conquer him. They, took, they, they steal the city, but they can't conquer him. God spares Ahaz. And <laughs> this, this is really where you just are floored by God's grace. There is another place in the Bible where this moment is mentioned. You will never guess where. It's in the book of Isaiah. And you will never guess the chapter is Isaiah 7. And in that passage, Isaiah approaches Ahaz, again, wicked king, sacrificing his children to the pagan gods, okay? And says, don't be discouraged by these two kings coming to attack you. God is going to protect you. And then Isaiah says, ask for a sign. This is Isaiah chapter 7. I'm going to put it here on the screen. Verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. In other words, ask anything you want. And verse 12, Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, that's just feigned humility, friends. He's like, oh, I don't want to put God to the test. He's feigning humility. And he said, hear then, this is Isaiah. Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And these words should sound familiar. Are you ready? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Holy smokes, God is gracious because this prophecy of the eventual birth of Jesus Christ comes to Israel during one of her darkest times in history, under one of her most wicked kings in history. God is extraordinarily gracious. I actually preached this passage, Isaiah 7, one Christmas, and I said, the title of the message is still in my head about it, and the title is, When We Are At Our Worst, God Is At His Best. And aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful that when we are really just (laughs) completely compromised at times in our lives that God is still offering us hope, mercy, grace, Jesus? By the way, that chapter... Uh, isaiah 7 leads to isaiah chapter 9 still speaking in the time of ahaz and there's this powerful promise reaffirmed in isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 for unto us a child is born to us a son is given the government shall be upon his shoulder his name shall be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father and prince of peace now isaiah is prophesying about a son that will be born during ahaz's time some Commentators are divided as to who that son is. Some believe it is Isaiah's son. Some believe it is Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz. It's irrelevant because it is pointing, yes, to a temporary fulfillment in Ahaz's day, but it's ultimately pointing to the cosmic fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And Israel was in a dark place when Jesus was born as well. They were in such a dark place that they crucified Jesus after he raised people from the dead, healed them from leprosy and blindness and deafness and dumbness and muteness and all those kind of things. And yet they crucified him. It just kind of shows you the the spiritual rot that was resident in Israel at the time of Jesus' ministry. Remember, this is the time where they, they imprisoned John the Baptist and cut off his head for speaking truth. You know your culture is corrupt when you cut off the head of those who are willing to speak truth and you claim to be God's people. But anyway, again, two of Isaiah's most used and referenced and recited prophecies about the birth of Christ come to Ahaz, one of the most wicked kings in all of Israel's or Judah's history. Anyway, let's move on in the text, verse seven. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileazar, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Don't miss the two phrases that he uses because they're going to, And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. He's talking to a foreign pagan king of Assyria. Now, remember, we've been talking about the fact that Assyria is the up and coming empire of the day. They have kind of subjugated the Syrians. They've subjugated the uh, Babylonians. They've subjugated all the nations around Israel. And they seem like they are the up and coming uh, empire. And Ahaz is threatened. And there's Ahaz giving him promises from God. And what does Ahaz do? He turns to who? He turns to the king of Assyria. He is enamored by the world. He is enamored by the powerful people in his in his generation. And so often in the church, I see the same thing happening. God's people are enamored by what they see in the world, and we can't be. We are God's people. We must stop being enamored by what we see in culture. Who cares if they are successful? Who cares if they look so happy? Who cares how blessed their lives seem? Trust in the Lord, but. But, but, but Ahaz is a thoroughly corrupt man. And so here's what he says. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also, and this is important, took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Syria. He bought him off, basically. And the king of Assyria, listened to him, the king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, Damascus is the capital of Syria, remember, carrying his people captive to Ker, and he killed Rezin. So Isaiah says to Ahaz, you trust in God, and Ahaz turns and trusts, Assyria. <laughs> Here's the question. What is your first reaction when you are threatened in life? When you are threatened, when, when things don't look good, what's your first reaction? Some of, some of God's people are turning to medication more and more than they're turning to prayer. Some of God's people are turning to the habits and the practices of this world, such as marijuana, such as illicit drugs. You turn to things that the culture says now is legal. Just because the culture says it's legal doesn't make it right. And I'm astounded at the number of Christians who are smoking marijuana. It needs to be repented of, turned away from. It will cause anxiety and it will increase mental in instability and, and emotional instability. And you need to reject it just because the world says it's good does not make it good. Oh, God's people, I implore you, please come out of the stupor, the drunken, drug-addled stupor that this demonic spiritual realm wants to put you under. By the way, let's get back to Ahaz's phrase here. He says, I'm your servant and your son to to the king of Assyria. Now, those two phrases, servant and son, it just betrays the fact that Ahaz forgot who he was. The scripture says in Exodus 4.22 that God, that Israel is God's son, his firstborn son. And the scripture speaks of David as God's servant, God's servant, not Assyria. So what Ahaz does is he says, I know i should be god's son and god's servant but now i'm going to be a serious son and a serious servant when you are following the practices of this world when you are listening to what they say and freaking out the way the world freaks out and becoming a friend of the world you are abdicating your identity in christ James chapter 4 verse 4 says, You adulterous people, do you not understand that friendship with the world is an enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to make himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We must remember our sonship. We must not forget that we are sons and daughters of the living God. 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has given us, unto us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason the world does not know us is because it did not know him. Remember that when your life is threatened. Remember, please. You are a son or a daughter of God, and you are a servant of the Most High. Please remember this, or you will be tempted in every manner of way to take the drug, pop the pill, see the therapist, follow the pop psychology, or or walk in league with the world. So... They are trusting Assyria, and this is what Isaiah is all about. If you ever read the first half of Isaiah, he is always talking about this. You are trusting in Assyria. You are trusting in that uh, he talks about, it. gives it a name like a, like a weak branch. He is not going to be able to do for you what God can do for you. Anyway, turning the page back to 2 Kings 16, verse 10, it says this, Then King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and he saw the altar that was in Damascus. So what is he seeing here? Please don't be misled by the term altar. The altar is the false altar that Jeroboam I had set up to sacrifice and offer offerings to God in his own way. And it was an abomination in the eyes of God. But Ahaz sees that altar and he loves it. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest to model the altar, it says this, and his pattern exact in all its details. And Uriah the priest built the altar in accordance with all the king that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz arrived uh, from Damascus, this is insane. Now, Ahaz is copying the worship practices of Israel. Ahaz, the descendant of David, is worshiping God in the where, in the manner, and in the way of the compromised foreign, uh, in the compromised ten tribes of the northern kingdom. Remember if you don't know anything about the Bible you know that God gave specific instructions to Moses of how the temple was to be how the tabernacle was to be made and then how the temple was to be made under Solomon. It had a door at one place, it had laver, lavers, it had the bronze altar, it had the baths outside and you're going to see deconstruction of all that upon the temple of Israel. This is important because it is a picture for us of what many churches are doing right now in our country. You drive by many churches. I have unbelievers who say this to me, and I'm, a, I'm shocked and, and, and um, blown away by this. They see it, and some Christians don't see it. I have unbelievers telling me I'm always amazed at how many times the churches have the progress or gay pride flag outside. And even sometimes churches will have the Black Lives Matter logo outside, or they'll have the Black Lives Matter statement outside. And instead of crosses, instead of, um, you know, symbols of our faith, they have symbols of this culture's worldliness And I have unbelievers telling me that, you know, it's pretty bad when unbelievers can see the church compromising better than the church can see itself compromising. But so many times the church is under the pressure to become like the world. They want to adopt the world's worship practices, the world's mantras. Sadly, this is becoming commonplace in the Christian church. Many churches are simply converting the worship of God into the worship of self. That's a lot of the pop psychology preaching we see in YouTube preachers across the country, across the world, really. It's all about you. It's all about you feeling better and being better and becoming better. And it has nothing to do with suffering for Christ. No, suffering is not what God wants for you. You should be healthy and wealthy and prosperous. That is just the worship of self. It's not the worship of God, it's worship of self. God becomes a means to our ends. God becomes the pathway by which we become prosperous, and you're not worshiping God, you're worshiping prosperity. Many churches have done that. Many churches have capitulated to culture on several issues, from abortion to gay marriage to transgenderism, and now you see Lutheran pastors you know, reciting the Sparkle Creed. I saw that online the other day. There was, a, I kid you not, a Lutheran pastor, obviously a female <laughs> Lutheran pastor, leading the church in the Sparkle Creed. The Sparkle Creed, and you can just imagine the words of that creed, uh, the they, them pronouns toward God, you know, the celebration of self, the, um, you know, we're raping the earth and shame on us and we should kill ourselves to save Mother Earth. I mean, all the same, you know, progressive secular mantras of our world, the church just capitulates to. And then many churches emphasize a kind of self-actualization that you see in motivational talks rather than the preaching of the gospel of Christ. Beware of that. The gospel does not come to make you better. The gospel comes to make you holier. Holier is not always worldly better. Holier does not mean poverty either, but it, it, it means set apart a distinction to your life where the world looks at you and you, and they see that you're different. But A has he embodies what is so prevalent in the, in the church today, in America, a church that is compromised and complicit with culture instead of standing as witness and testifying against it to the gospel of Jesus. Now, Uriah, notice that Uriah just go ahead, just goes ahead and builds it. I mean, he's a far cry from the priest who who confronted Uzziah, Ahaz's. Grand grandfather, when Uzziah wanted to offer incense, there was priests who said, "No, you're the king; you can't offer you're, you can't offer incense." Now, even notice that the priesthood has deteriorated spiritually, so that the priests are complicit with the compromise of the king. Sometimes this happens in the church where there's no person who's willing to stand up and say, "Wait, let's do what God says." And you think this is the end, and it is the end. This is the beginning of the end for uh, uh, um, Judah. And we'll see it at the end of Second Kings, but it, God is going to be amazingly gracious and provide salvation for them before that happens. Anyway, verse 12, let's move on in the passage. It says this, And when the king came from Damascus, the king viewed the altar. Then he drew near to the altar and went up on it and burned his offering and his grain offering and poured his drink offering and threw the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. And the bronze altar that was before the Lord, he removed... Uh, from the front of the house of the Lord. So he removes God's altar and and um, replaces it with his altar. It says this, from the place between his altar and the house of the Lord and put it on the north side of the altar. So he's rearranging the furniture in the house of God. That's exactly what we do when we compromise as the church. When we no longer put Jesus in the center, when we no longer open our Bibles and teach it, when we no longer abide by the ordinances of the church, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, when we no longer practice the ancient historical practices of the church, and then we replace these historical practices with feel-good religion, with worship that is more about us than about Christ, this is compromise. This is deterioration, spiritual deterioration. And the problem is, is that it can look very spiritual. That's the problem. The problem is that it can look very Christian, and it has no Christian witness whatsoever. Warren Wearsby says about this passage in his commentary, and I love his statement. He says, the religious novelties in churches today may excite and entertain people, but they do not edify the church or exalt the Lord. You can have a system, as Paul talks about, a form of godliness and no power. You can have a system of religiosity and no relationship with the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. You can be spiritual and on your way to hell. You can be uh, churchy and on your way to hell. You can have faith, as in just the idea, the enigmatic idea of having faith, and still be on your way to hell. Be be aware of this. Too many Christians in all churches. I am not going to castigate any one church. I believe in all churches there are Christians who have still professing Christians. Let me back that up. Professing Christians who have still not come face to face with. The crucified Son of God for their sins. The Son of God died for you because you are before Christ dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians, Ephesians 2.5. 2, you are uh, Ephesians two one. You are following the prince of this of the power of the air. You are corrupted in your understanding. You are wicked and blind and deaf. And God in grace through Jesus Christ has made the way possible for you to come and be cleansed and to receive spiritual sight and spiritual ears to hear and a a new heart that you cannot give yourself. It happens by grace through faith. But so many Christians, and again, professing Christians, they come to church looking for the good life, the spiritual life, the faith life, but they don't have the crucified life, the crucified to self life that Christ calls us to. And I bring that up because on, in this passage, and you've probably heard me emphasize the word, but look at all the uh, rep- repetitions of the word offering, 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 offering. Everywhere in this text, there's offerings, but guess what? There is not. There's no obedience. There is no holiness. It's got the, it's got the presentation of religion. It has, it has the presentation of spirituality, but it has no commitment to the Lord. And so many churches, so many Christians, that's where they are. Please hear this, not as, um, I'm not trying to make people feel bad, but I really think it's important, as Paul says, to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. And please ask yourself, take a moment, maybe pause the video and even ask, am I trusting in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins and the cleansing of my wickedness and embracing all that God gives me, whether it be suffering or glory, for his purposes okay anyway moving on to verse 17 it says this and king a has cut off the frames of the stands and removed the basin from them and he took down the sea from off the bronze oxen that were under it and put it on a stone pedestal what's he doing he's deconstructing he's deconstructing this friends is deconstruction this is a buzzword in in the subculture of evangelicalism i'm deconstructing my faith i'm checking things out i'm taking i'm tearing it apart i'm starting to look at new age religions i'm starting to look at islam and hinduism and buddhism and aren't they all the same thing and so maybe i've got to deconstruct that's exactly what ahaz does it's incredible how there's nothing new under the sun. And in verse 18 it says he covered the way for the Sabbath that had been built inside the house and the outer ent- entrance for the king, he caused to go around the house of the Lord because of the king of Assyria. In other words, he didn't want entrance into the house of God. He cut out he cut out the the way to God's salvation, the way to the temple. Because of why? Because he was intimidated by the kingdom around him, the nations around him. Verse 19, now the rest of the acts of Ahaz that he did, are they not written in the books of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Ahaz slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Hezekiah, ooh, baby, Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. Ladies and gentlemen, that one phrase, Hezekiah, is born of Ahaz, is a statement of grace because Hezekiah will bring phenomenal spiritual reform to the house of Judah. And God will shed his grace on this nation one more time, amazingly enough. Let's turn the page to 2 Kings chapter 17, shall we? And this is, the se- this is the chapter where the northern kingdom of Israel comes crashing down at the hands of Assyria. Verse 1, in the 12th year of Ahaz, king of Judah, so he's down there, you know, burning his sons in the fire, Hosea, the son of Elah began to reign in Samaria over Israel. And he reigned nine years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet, and look at this phrase, not as the kings of Israel who were before him, meaning much for, much worse, Against him came up Shalmaneser king of Assyria, and Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hoshea, for he had sent messengers to so king of Egypt and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria. And for three years, he besieged it. Now, a couple of things spiritually that we can take away from this text. You've got this wicked King Hosea. He's not just looking to Assyria. He then starts to make partnership with Egypt and he starts to pay Egypt tribute. He's torn not just in one direction, but in two directions. Hear me very carefully. Hear, not me, but the text very carefully. This is how compromise works. This is how deconstruction works. Before you know it, you're tied up in knots and you're trying to appease every God around you. You're you're embracing every philosophy of man from the left to the right, from the up to the down, you know, you're, you're, you're torn in all different kinds of places. And the world's gonna shut you up. You, you know why we have to be on our guard about uh, spiritual compromise and deconstruction and all, the, all these things that are so prevalent in our society right now? Because the world has no interest in supporting you. It only has interest in swallowing you. And that's exactly what Assyria is going to do to the Northern Kingdom. At first, Assyria looked like they were a support to Israel, as Assyria, through Tiglath Pileser, held off Pekah and, um, oh, uh, who was the king of <laughs> Remaliah? There we go. Think Remaliah the king of Syria and the king of Israel. So Tiglath-Beleazar held them off. And it looked like he was a support. It looked like Assyria was a support for Israel. No, that's the deception of the devil. What you think is supporting you, that's ungodly and not appropriate for you, is really looking to swallow you. So hear me people who are turning to the world, turning to drugs, turning to pills, turning to therapies, turning to ideologies of this present darkness. It might work for a little while, but it's going to swallow you up. The devil does not play nice. He wants you a heart, mind, soul, and strength. He wants everything that God deserves. He wants all of you. And this is why you have to be on your guard in every area of your life. I know it's, oh, it's hard, it's discipline. But you've got what Paul says, I beat my body. I make it a slave so that after preaching to others, I might not also be disqualified. Uh, Verse six, in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and he he carried the Israelites away. There's the swallowing. Carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and on the Habor, the river of Gozan and in the cities of Medes. Now, this text is going to move. And for the first time in the books of first and second Kings, we have a author's commentary and kind of rehash of why all of this happened. It's kind of amazing because we've had history after history after history after history, and now suddenly, suddenly we have the commentary on it. So this is gonna be long, I'm just gonna warn you, and we're gonna go through this very quickly, as quickly as we can, because it really is just the, the okay, this happened because. In fact, that's exactly how verse nine, and verse seven, sorry, opens up. Let's take a look. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord, their God. The writer wants to be clear. This did not happen because they were bad at politics. This did not happen because they didn't feed the homeless enough. This did not happen because they, you know, they didn't, they weren't nice enough. No, they sinned against the Lord. The, the Lord their God. And then notice the phrase, who had brought them up out of where? Out of the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and feared and had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God, the things that were not right. They built themselves high places in their, all, their, all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. Let me point out a couple of phrases here. They did not remember... God brought them out of the land of Egypt, and I will get to this later, but ingratitude. Can I talk about, no, I won't get to it later. I'm going to get to it now. Ingratitude is one of the best ways the devil starts to win in your life. When you no longer give God thanks for what he has done for you, what he he has made for you to be. You are susceptible to anxiety and stresses of this life and then even further susceptible to trusting the ideologies of this life. I read a report and it's been confirmed in several different places that I researched. The same part of the brain that will work the feelings of anxiety out in your mind and heart is the same part of the brain that work that goes to work when you start being grateful for things. And the phrase that I ran across in my research was this anxiety and gratitude cannot live in the same mind at the same time, anxiety and gratitude cannot live in the same mind at the same time. If you're, if you're busy being thankful for what God has given you, you cannot be anxious about what you might experience in the future. Someone needs to hear that. I needed to hear that. You need to hear that. This is why the, the author of Kings mentions that God brought them out of Egypt. We're going all the way back to Egypt, by the way. Let's take a look at the patience of God, because this is 700 years ago. 700 years ago, he brought them out of Egypt. and Here, here finally, after 700 years of disobedience, really 400 or 300 years of rampant disobedience, now, only now, does God hand them over to their enemies. God is exceedingly patient. Anybody who wants to say that the God of Israel, the God of the Old Testament, is this hateful, vengeful God of retribution and judgment, and 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 then the New Testament, God is patient. And God, you haven't read the New Old Testament in his context. God is exceedingly patient with Israel, as He has been up until this point. And so, looking at the rearview mirror of Israel, He says, "You brought, God brought them out of the land of Egypt, and <clears throat> they forgot." the Passover. They for, that's why the Passover was so important. The Passover is supposed to be re- celebrated every year. Remember that they disconnected from the southern kingdom of Judah, so they no longer practiced the, the feast days, and they forgot about the Passover. The Passover was to teach them and remind them that they were saved by the blood of the Lamb and brought into the land through God's amazing grace. They forgot that. that but what they really did was they were in gratitude. They were in, ungrateful. They were f- forgetful of God's blessings, and then they became anxious because of the encroachment of the enemies around them, and then they turn to those foreign powers to save them. So your life needs to regularly practice gratitude. One of the main ingredients of spiritual deterioration is a lack of giving thanks for God's salvation. You don't think about it, but it's true. Being less thankful to God is the best way to feel more desperate for the world. And you've got to keep your guard up here and take time and thank God and write down things that he's done for you. And you've got to go to a church locally and celebrate the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, depending on your tradition, and receive the body and blood of the Lord Jesus and receive, reminding yourself, this is done for me. I was saved because Jesus died. Gratitude is the antidote to anxiety. And I am imploring some of you because this will get your heart mixed up faster than you realize in gratitude. And forgetting what God has done for you and made for you to be, that's what the king's the king's writer is talking about. He goes all the way back to Egypt, and he moves on in verse ten. And he says, "This they set up for themselves." Oh wait, 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 wait! I got to back up. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. One more thing. I want one more thing. I want to point out here in <clears throat> verse nine. It says, "And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord." And, I, and this phrase "secretly" is always humorous to me because, of course, it wasn't secretly, but they thought it was. They thought that their secret sins would not come back to bite them. And that is not true. Whatever you whatever you think you're doing or getting away with in secret eventually will come back to bite you. Your script, the scripture says your sins will find you out. Jesus says whatever is hidden will be revealed. Whatever is not disclosed will be unco- uncovered. You've got to uncover your sins through confession so that you can get, have God's co- uh, blood cover it uh, through redemption. And this is... Another sign of deterioration spiritually is that you start to mess with secret sin and it's not secret. God sees. Confess it. Make it right before God. Confess it. If you've been unfaithful to your spouse, confess it. If you've been unfaithful in your business management, confess it. I know it's hard, but you will find grace when you confess. Verse 10, back to where we were, they set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you. By my servants the prophets. In other words, you forgot that you were different. <laughs> this is really what he is saying. You started by making pillars, and a pillar leads to idolatry, and then idolatry leads to wicked activity. And then the prophets came, and here's the trajectory of spiritual deterioration. We are ungrateful, then we are anxious, and we turn to the world, and then we worship the things of the world. And before you know it, we are deaf to God's word. We are deaf. And blind to God's truth. Sin blinds. In fact, if you look at the story of Samson, what's that? what happens to this mighty man? Because he can't get his lust and his selfish greed under control. And at the end of the day, he is lied to and he believes the lie. He is tricked and deceived by Delilah. And the Philistines come in and they chain him. And they blind him and they put him in the mill to grind all day. Sin, what Sin does what? Sin blinds. Sin binds and sin grinds. Blinds, binds, and grinds. And that's exactly what happened to Israel in Second Kings chapter 17 verse 14. But they would not listen. They were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenants that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false and they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded that they should not do like them. Imitation. You, you you cannot imitate the world, you are called to be different than the world, and that is a good thing. Who wants to be like this world? Look at this world. I mean, in some ways, as a pastor, and I say this sort of tongue-in-cheek, in some ways, I like what I see happening in the world because I do see this, it is stimulating people back to the church. <laughs> I mean, I, I say again, this is tongue in cheek. I don't want to see, you know, the rampant sin and the rampant immorality and the rampant insanity that we see happening. But I have seen a lot of Christians say, okay, enough. That's, that's it. I'm out. Time out. I'm out of here. I, this is too much for me. When we're having men have babies suck on their nipples and calling that chest feeding, I'm checking out. And you know what? Good. If the de- de- degradation of society is an impetus for your return and repentance, amen. I don't want to see it, but if God uses that, then so be it. Okay, verse 16, it says this, And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah. That's back to Jeroboam's time, remember. They made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And that was the time of Eli- Elijah. Again, this is just a rehash, a rehearsing of all that we have discussed through 1st and 2nd Kings. Verse 17. And they burned their sons and daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left, but only the tribe of Judah. One thing I want to point out from this verse, and don't miss it. Uh are sacrificing their children leads to divination omens. Uh, and spiritualism—that is an abomination in the sight of God. You need to stay away from any kind of or any form of spiritualization that does not root itself in the truth of, of the Word of God. I am talking about astron uh, astrology. <laughs> I always get those two words mixed up: astronomy and astrology. One's legitimate; and one's a false, a false spirituality. So astrology, tarot card reading, Ouija boards, any kind of spiritual meditation that is outside of the boundaries of God's Word. You want to meditate? Uh, meditate biblically, you fill your mind with God's word. You do not empty your mind for the devil to plant seeds in it. Uh, Yoga meditation, spiritual practices of the Hindu religion. You need to stay away from these things. Uh, If you do yoga for stretching, fine. Okay. But focus on the word of the Lord in your mind. Christians do not empty their mind. They fill their mind with what God says. Okay. Anyway, moving on. Verse 19, Judah this is the southern kingdom. Remember David's kingdom. It says this, Also did not keep the commands of the Lord, their God, but walked in all the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. Verse 21, When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam son of Nebat king. And again, this is rehearsing the whole narrative of 1 and Second Kings. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not, part, they did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he has spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled uh, from their own land to Assyria to this day. Now look at this line here. They did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam until, verse 23, until what? The Lord removed Israel out of his sight. Sometimes God's harsh judgments are necessary to purify our hearts. And sometimes God brings us through a season in our lives that is horrible. And we think, where where is God leading? What is he doing? He is purifying you. In some ways, his judgments are mercy. His discipline is favorable. It is good for you because it trains you to reject sin and embrace righteousness. Verse 24, And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kuthah, Ava, Hamath, and Sevarim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in the cities. Now, this is what Assyria always did. When they conquered a people, they would take the people out and then they would flood the people with different people from different nations. And the reason why was this. In the ancient world, your nationality was your identity. And so if you could intermarry them and get them to interbreed, they would literally lose their identity and they would be subservient to the Assyrians who maintained their identity. Uh, That's how the ancient world uh, empires worked in displacing and conquering peoples. So now the land is filled with all these foreigners. Now remember this, and this is a fact. The land belonged to God, and it was promised to Israel. Now Israel is out of the land, but it's still a promise to them. So look what happens in verse 25. This is incredible how God works. We learn about God's character so much when we slow down and read the scriptures verse by verse. It says in verse 25, and at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. By the way, up until the early 1900s, there were still Asiatic lions in the uh, land of Israel, where Israel presently is. And some people call it Palestine and all those kind of things. So There there was... um, an immense amount of pun, uh, hunting and poaching that literally decimated the lion population, the Asiatic lion population in Israel. So there's no lions there today, but there were in the ancient world and even up until the late 1800s, early 1900s. So this is what I'm trying to just say is that this is, this is real. This is true. So the people are getting eaten by lions. Verse 26, the king of Assyria was told, the nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them and behold, they are killing them because they do not know the law of the God of the land. So uh just interesting here what happens the king of Assyria commanded verse 27 send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there and let him go and dwell there and teach the law teach them the law of the god of the land so one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that Samaritans had made, every nation in in the cities in which they lived. So you have kind of this weird accommodation from the king of Assyria, and he's saying, okay, I get it. Uh, Their god has rules for that land, so get me one of the priests from there that we took captive and took away from there. Bring him back and let him teach the people the law (laughs) so that they can just be people who don't die at the hands of these lions. Kind of um, humorous, but at the same time reminding us that the land is Israel's. And I've, again, I say this on regular, regular uh, regularly on this channel. I've been to Israel, and one of the most touching moments that I had in my Israel tour was that the Jewish guy that was leading us through the tour said, he showed us how there's streams bursting in the Negev. They're finding wells of water in this desert region. Um, they show you a picture of the land before the Jews came back and started to migrate back to the land, which happened well before World War II. It happened in the late 18th. 1800s there was a zionist movement that started i think somewhere around 1870 something but anyway there was this uh, great migration of jews back to the land in the late 1800s and a desert became a flourishing metropolis with plenty of vegetation and crops and herbs and gardens and all those kind of things it is it's a reminder of what ezekiel says that the land will produce fruit for god's people it is god's land to give to his people his natural people the the children of abraham so anyway, verse 30, back to the text. The men of Babylon made succoth Benoth. the men of Cuth made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashma, and the abbots made Nibhaz and Tark-Tak. <laughs> this sounds like a Star Trek <laughs> litany of names. And the Sarvites burned their children in the fire, and Adremelech and Anamelech, the, the gods of Sever. They also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. Now, this is important because this will become a centerpiece of the Samaritan religion. The Samaritans, the half-breed Jews who are then intermingled with these nations that God brought in to the northern kingdom after Assyria dominated them, they are a pluralistic kind of semi-quasi you know faithful religious system but you know very interbred with the religious systems of the world around them and this is why the jews of jesus's day had such a problem with them they only believed the first five books of moses of course they wouldn't believe this book because this book really paints them in a bad light right they wouldn't believe first and second kings so they only accepted the first five books of moses they made their own temple in mount Gerizim. they made their own you know priesthood and Ironically, if you do some research, there are still some Samaritans still working and worshiping according to those ancient practices in the area of Mount Gerizim to this day. (laughs) It's incredibly uh, amazing to think about that and research that. But anyway, this uh, this is the Samaritans, and this is what this is where Jesus actually ministers. He goes through deliberately in John four through Samaria, finds a woman who is married to five men and divorced from five men and, and, and shacked up with another guy and the seventh man that she meets is Jesus powerful number but this is why the Jews couldn't stand the Samaritans they were they were half-breeds they weren't really faithful to God and yet Jesus loved them and brought them back and brought them to repentance and if you remember John chapter 4 that woman becomes a powerful evangelist and wins the whole city of Samaria to Jesus and then they come and they listen to her testimony they listen to his testimony and they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ So verse 34 says this, to this day, they did according to the former manner. They do not fear the Lord. and They do not follow the statutes of the rules of the law, the commandment of the Lord, commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. The Lord made a covenant with them and commanded them, you shall fear, you shall not fear other gods or bow yourselves to them or serve them or sacrifice to them. But you shall fear the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm. You shall bow yourselves to him and to him you shall sacrifice. Verse 30, uh, where are we? 37. Sorry, ignore the reference up there. This is verse 37, and the statutes, and the rules, and the law, and the commandment that he wrote for you, you shall always be careful to do. You shall not fear other gods, and you shall not forget the covenant that I have made with you. You shall not fear other gods, but you shall fear the Lord your God, and he will deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies. However, they would not listen, but they did all according to their former nature, f- former manner. So these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise, and their children's children, to their fa- as their fathers did, so they do to this day. This is the incredible... Uh, penetration power of sin from generation to generation, uh, from community to community and from generation to generation. And that's what we see here in this text. But lest you think that all of this is God's plan falling to pieces and, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? I want to take you back to Deuteronomy where God warned Israel that all of this was going to happen. Now think about it. Deuteronomy is written 700 and some odd 50 years before this happens through Moses and Moses has the Israelites split up into two groups. Some go on Mount uh, Gerizim and some go out on Mount Elam and they pronounce blessing and cursings and the blessing and cursings are predicated on whether or not they will uh, obey the law of the Lord. And if you go back to Deuteronomy 28 and you you read it, it says that, that God promises He will cause you to be defeated, verse 25, before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee in seven ways. Verse 40, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away from the ends of the earth, swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. Verse 52, they shall besiege you in all your homes until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. They shall besiege you in your towns throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you. This is amazing how God is faithful to his word even for good. Uh, For evil, sometimes, for the bad, for the damaging effects of sin upon our lives. Now, there is a door of hope, because I don't want to end on a bad note. The door of hope is that there's a king who will be born to Ahaz named Hezekiah. And Hezekiah is a righteous reformer. What he does is he goes right away to studying the law of the Lord, uh, studying how the temple was supposed to be constructed. And a wicked king Ahaz gives, you know, produces this righteous king named Hezekiah. Hezekiah becomes God's mercy to the nation. And then Hezekiah does something. He repairs, one of the first things he does, is he repairs the door, the doors to the temple, and opens them. Remember that Hosea shut them because he, was, he didn't want Assyria to, to see it. He was ashamed of his God. So Hezekiah comes in. I'm not Ahaz, Ahaz. I'm sorry. Ahaz was the king of Judah. And so Hezekiah comes in and undoes what his father does, repairs the temple doors and opens them. And then 2 Chronicles, a parallel account of the next chapter in 2 Kings says the following. This is, this is wow. It says Hezekiah, this is 2 Chronicles 30, sent to all Israel and Judah, Israel and Judah. Now remember, Israel has been taken captive, but there are still some people. There are still some people who are in the land and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover of the Lord, the God of Israel. Remember, the Passover was a symbol of remembrance to f- remember and be grateful for what God did to them. For the king and his princes and all the assembly of Jerusalem had taken counsel to keep the Passover in the second month. So couriers went throughout all the land of Israel and Judah with letters from the king and his princes and the king had commanded saying, "O people of Israel return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, that he may turn again to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the king of Assyria, do not be like your fathers or your brothers who were faithless to the Lord their God, so that He made them a desolation as you see. But uh, do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and come to His sanctuary in which He has consecrated forever. And serve the Lord your God, that his fierce anger may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and return and will not turn his face away from you if you return to him. So the couriers went out, says this in verse 10. However, verse 11, some laughed at them, but some, verse 10, it says some laughed and scorned, but some humbled themselves and they came back to Jerusalem. And the hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what, was, what the king had to and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord, and many people came together in Jerusalem to keep the feast of unleavened bread in the second month, a very great assembly. They set to work and removed the altars that were in Jerusalem and all the altars for burning incense that they took away and threw into the brook Kidron. So God provides a king, this is important. God provides a righteous king right after a wicked, horrible, child-sacrificing king who opens the doors to the temple who removes the idolatry from the house of God and invites God's refugees, if you will, back home. And Hezekiah right here is a picture for every wandering saint of the Most High God. For everyone who has been listening to this content up until this moment, and you think I could never come back to God. Yes, you can. Because there is a better than Hezekiah king named Jesus Christ who does not just open the doors of an ancient temple and cleanse that temple. If you remember at the end of the gospels, he cleanses the temple. He becomes the temple and he bears his body on the cross with your sins laid upon him. And just as his flesh was torn, so the door, the veil is torn that leads God out to you to call you home to him and through our true and better hezekiah the door of eternal salvation is open until he comes again until the end of this age and you are not too far gone there is still there is still a place for grace in your life that's the text let's tap into truth spiritual compromise. Can we talk about it? Because we don't remember, we, we we need to understand the steps that lead to the disaster that Israel experienced. And there were steps. Step number one is forgetting who you are, forgetting who made you. You are made by God. He has called you his own. This is what Israel forgot. They forgot the Lord, their God, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. Go back to second Kings chapter 17, verse seven and read it. When you forget who made it, when you forget the Lord's Supper, when you forget Christ, when you forget that Christianity is not about you becoming great, but you making God's name great, Jesus' name great, you are losing your identity. Number two, spiritual compromise is thinking you belong here. You don't. You, you don't belong to this world. You, you, you have to understand that this is an underlayment to compromise that some people don't realize. The more you want to belong to this world, the more susceptible you are to spiritual deterioration and deconstruction. James chapter four, four, we read it already, but do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? If you wish to make yourself a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. That's why Paul will tell the Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. We wait for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body. We are not of this world. And if we forget that, we will live like this world. Number three, spiritual compromise is trying to be like here. Imitation, imitating the world. A lot of Christians because they don't know that they are different and they're called to be different, they imitate the practices of the world. They raise their kids the same. They treat their marriage the same. They treat dating the same. They spend their money the same as unbelievers. You can't do that. You must not do You cannot imitate the world. You must stand as a contrast to the world. And what happens is they slap on a Sunday service and they think they're Christians. No. You're following Christ is a day-by-day event. It is a daily denial of self and an obedience to Jesus Christ. It is a daily confession of sinfulness so that God can cleanse you of your sins and wash you clean. Scripture says in Third John chapter, uh, uh, verse 11, Third John 11, <laughs> verse 11, one chapter in Third John. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Don't imitate the world implication there will be the tendency to imitate and as i've already said you can be spiritual you can have faith you can go to church you can be a good person you can be embraced by your neighbors and still not have a right relationship with god that is the form of religion that ahaz introduces to judah look at all the offerings look at all the sacrifices i'm making on this pagan altar that i have installed that i have copied from the compromised nation to the north and he loads it up with offerings but it's got the the form of religion but no power we are made to be different, and we must not ever forget that. Lastly, number four, spiritual compromise is depending on here, but depending on your world. When tragedy or trouble strikes, who do you go to? When you are threatened, who was your first source? The pill, the pot, <laughs> the pop psychology, the, you know, whatever. Uh, COVID really exposed this for a lot of Christians as they trusted um, doctors and experts more than they trusted the word of the living God, as churches kept their churches closed, pastors kept their churches closed for a year or more when God specifically tells his people to gather, when the word church is ekklesia, the Greek word ekklesia meaning assembly. We can't be a church without assembling. Politics exposes people's trust, uh, Christians' trust in politicians rather than God. Money exposes a man's heart. Do you trust God or do you trust money? Psalm 118 Verse eight and nine. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. But I leave you with the promise of a Hezekiah. You have a better Hezekiah, Jesus Christ. And he offers this fact, that spiritual renewal is always on the table for you. You're not too far gone. You haven't messed it up too much. God is not done with you. If you have breath, you have a chance To be born again of the Holy Spirit, to be brought back as the prodigal son was from the pigsty. And God's message to you is the same message that Hezekiah sent through couriers. O people of Israel, return to the Lord, return to him that he may turn again to you. If you return to the Lord, you will find compassion. And you will return to this land for your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. That's the episode. Thanks for being here. God bless you. Support the channel through Cash App, Tim Hatch Live, or TimHatchLive.com support. We will be back. I am hoping next week, busy week for me personally, but I hope I will be back next week for the deep end and the deep dive other than that, God bless you. Have a great night. In Jesus' name.